Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome to episode 120 of the Nerdfest podcast, coming to you live from Newcastle Nerd Fright Fest. This week's nerds are Ian McLaughlin, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Chandler. On today's show, we have our buff or bluff quiz, where we each have three facts for you, but we have completely made one of them up, and it's our job and your job to work out the lie from the truth. Plus, we have a feature called Shameful Gap, and it's where one of us nerds who's not seen a film that arguably they should have done by now, they watch it for the first time, and today that film is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Plus, Peter's got a fun, pun-related quiz for us, so... Uh, Terrible pun-related quiz. Excellent, I'm looking forward to that. So, let's start our show. So, for those of you who have never listened to Nerdfest before, we are all friends. We're still friends, right? Acquaintances. <laughs> we all love movies and we discuss them at length each and every single day. Um, to the extent that about four years ago, uh, whilst we were in a pub, it was suggested that we really should do a podcast about this. Um, we're also all part of the Suggestible School of Improv, led by the wonderful Ian McLaughlin over there. Hello. And his partner, Bev. So, we try and put some fun games into our episodes as well. Speaking of which, should we play our first game? Yes, yes. I can't wait. <laughs> okay, so buff or bluff. So this is where we've got some facts, but one of them is not true. John, why don't we start with you? Okay, well, later on in the episode, we're going to be talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, the popular 80s horror movie starring everyone's favorite killer, Freddy Krueger. Um, so, the weird thing about A Nightmare on Elm Street is, for a series of horror films, it became a massive kind of pop culture thing in the late 80s, and Freddy Krueger became like a massive popular anti-hero, I think he's kind of one of the most well-known characters in American cinema in the late 80s, and there was just a glut of terrible Freddy Krueger-related merchandise. Right. Um, I think so, some of it's possibly here at the show. Some of it's here. I've actually purchased some this morning. I have a, I have a very large Freddy Krueger figure on the table at the moment. That's very good, though. That is very good, yes. But yours are terrible. Mine are terrible. So here are three Freddy Krueger-related merchandise items. Two are real. One I have entirely made up. Okay. Number one is a, uh, a popular record called Freddy's Greatest Hits, um, <laughs> featuring Freddy Krueger <laughs> and the Elm Street Band. <laughs> This was released in America in 1987 and features uh, covers of popular songs including Do the Freddy by Freddy and the Dreamers and other surf pop hits with Freddy Krueger providing a kind of singing rap over the top of many of the songs. Excellent. Number two is the McDonald's Nightmare Meal. This was a version of the McDonald's Happy Meal uh, which was created as a tie-in no a Nightmare and Elm Street 5. <laughs> Uh, the burger came with a pre-slashed bun that, <laughs> when you squeezed it, ketchup came out of the top. <laughs> and the third item, I have completely forgotten what it was. It's not like we're live or anything. Is it Freddy Krueger underpants? No, is it, it is. Is it a knife set? It's not a knife set, no. It is a Freddy Krueger toaster. Right. 
So the Freddy Krueger toaster uh, wasn't just a normal toaster. You would put your bread in and your bread would pop out toasted, but also with a picture of Freddy Krueger <laughs> imprinted on it via the medium of making bits of the toast slightly darker than others. Wow. Wow. I mean, I know Freddy Krueger was ridiculously popular for a little while, but um, all of those sound really implausible. Especially the toaster one, because Freddy famously had metal fingers, very, very yeah. sharp metal fingers. And if you try to get the toast out with those metal fingers... Dangerous. It's, Dangerous uh, gonna, yeah. You're going to electrocute yourself. And also, yourself. didn't he get burned to death? <laughs> yes. Did a bit, yeah. So toasting is a bit tasteless. Yeah. <laughs> but John is a bit tasteless. Well, true. <laughs> but there are toasters that do print pictures. I've mm-hmm. seen them. Yeah, different kinds of pictures, so that kind of technology does exist. There is a internet-connected toaster that pops up the toast in the morning with a picture of the weather for the day. So <laughs> either a sun or a cloud or something. Right. right. What do you think about the band? I know there is a band called Freddy and the Dreamers, which is not that band. There is a 60s band called that. Mm-hmm. So if that detail is right, then it's a complete lie. Do, I think Do the Freddy was originally a Freddy and the Dreamers song. And the McDonald's tie-in burger. Uh, I mean, was it Happy Meal? (laughs) Was it an unhappy meal? meal? But these are mainly targeted to children. And I know you're weird, John, in that you watched all the horror movies when you were four years old, but not many other people did that. So are they missing their target market? I think so. I mean, there was Freddy Krueger chewing gum at one point. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think it's decision time. Oh, God. Um, What are we going for? I'm going to go for the greatest hits. What has been the bluff? Yeah. There's a long history of various <laughs> stars doing terrible records, especially Star Trek stars doing terrible records, and it's a sort of Christmas thing that people get a nice bit of money for, and they go to the studio for a day and just go, to a song. I think the McDonald's Happy Meal is the bluff. Okay. I just don't think McDonald's would have gone for that because of the connotations of murder. Yeah. Um, I, it is a bit murdery, yes. Yeah. I have problems with that one too, but the toaster one is the one that's calling out to me. So we're... One, two, three. Yeah, oh, we don't. Okay. There's no consensus. So no. what is the bluff, John? Should we go to, for a decider from the audience? <laughs> Hello, young man. What's your name? <laughs> <laughs> My name's Timothy. <laughs> Hello, so Timothy. You, you've heard the three options. Which one do you think is real? So you've got, you've got the, the hits by Freddy Krueger, you've got the Happy Meal, or you've got the toaster. What do you think? Oh, I think it's the toaster. <laughs> Thank you, Timothy. <laughs> Excellent. Right, John, reveal the bluff. Um, there was a Freddy's Greatest Hits album oh. released in 1987. Wow. And there is also a Freddy Krueger toaster that prints, oh. Oh, prints Freddy Krueger's image on your morning bed. There was not a McDonald's Nightmare yes. Unhappy Meal. Oh, yes. I win. Ian McLaughlin yes, takes that you. one. Okay. Okay, well, maybe I'll go next. So, inspired by Newcastle Nerd Fright Fest, I've got some film festivals around the world with some unusual premises. Ooh. What, you mean the places they are? Nope. I mean the reason for being. <laughs> okay, number one, the International Mustache Film Festival. Ooh. This premiered in Portland, Maine in 2012 and celebrates films featuring the best, what some call the lady tickler, <laughs> the lip spinach, the cookie duster. Formerly, it is simply known as the mustache. And I guarantee you, this is from the festival's website description. In all its forms, the moustache represents a man's individuality and inner strength. Whether a full, furry and lustrous lip warmer or a smooth, sleek line of suave sophistication weaving its way across a dude's upper lip, the man's moustache is an indication of his robust heart and the very soul of his being. Okay. (laughs) So, the films are selected on uh, two criteria. First, they have to be good. 
Second is they want films that highlight conspicuous, outstanding, and awesome facial hair. So there can be films featuring any of the following. Hippies, prophets, musicians, mountain men, cops, robbers, firemen, old-fashioned strong men, cowboys, NFL quarterbacks, private investigators, scientists, political leaders, pirates, Canadians, wizards, dwarves, dads, cavemen, you, your friends, and your enemies. <laughs> okay, so anyone. That's number one. International okay. Mustache Film Mustache uh, Festival. Number two, the Animal Representation Film Festival, known colloquially as ARF, <laughs> sponsored by the American Humane Association, which has protected the welfare of animals on film since 1939. This festival celebrates heroic depictions of animals in the movies. Now, they had some very strict criteria for the films that are recognized. In each film, Hollywood trainers are required to relinquish the animals to reputable sanctuaries where they can have some semblance of a normal life after the film. And also, wild animals are never to be used in the production. Bonus points if the actors use their own animals, like Bradley Cooper, who used his own dog for A Star is Born. Some of the award categories, Best Four-Legged Friend, Best Aquatic Avenger, Bravest Animal, Most Satisfying Comeuppance for a Human, Most Mischievous Animal, and Best Animated Animal. Now, the award ceased in 2011 as Peter stepped up their campaign against the mistreatment of animals in movies and television and advocated for the increased use of CGI and animatronics. So, ARF. I like that one. Number three, the International Random Film Festival. 25 new films are randomly chosen to air at a random location on a random date, and the details are different each year. The founders decided to start the Random Film Festival to give an equal possibility to all filmmakers to have their films screened internationally. So the date of the festivals is uh, selected using random.org. The location is selected by opening Wikipedia and clicking on random articles repeatedly until you reach a page representing a place with a local population. And the awards are pretty random. So there's the Runaway Turtle Award and the Spoon and Goldfish Award. That was a long one. It is a long one. <laughs> International Mustache Film Festival, the Animal Representation Arf. on Film, ARF, or is it the Random Film Festival? You get a choice. So, you know, suddenly you've got a little village and there's thousands of film fans descending on watching completely random films. Just the logistics of organising yeah, that. Do they have to, do they have to like clear it with the local authorities? Uh, yes, I once the location has been chosen, then uh, yes, I presume they have to find a suitable venue to screen everything. I like that one, and I want it to be real, so I'm going to say that's true. The animal one, the arf pun, is terrible. <laughs> it is a terrible pun. Yeah. I, it sort of pun that someone I know might come up with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's the organisers who came up with the pun. It's just, like, mm. that's interesting. An, an animal, <laughs> animal representation of film. Ah, that'd be cool. Arf. But then the, uh, the list of people with moustaches just sounds like... It was like too long for her to... It, it was just an arbitrary list of people that you think might have moustaches, basically. Yep. Canadians. Canadians, yep. <coughs> can, can you interview a Canadian without a moustache? You can enter it, but you would not be respected anymore. I see. <laughs> I think that one's true as well. It's just so random. It's got to be true. There are some, some very silly film festivals. I think it's the ARF is the... Yeah. I think ARF is I the... I think yeah. ARF as well. Yeah. Should we ask the audience? Yeah. Hello. What's your name? My name's Mary. Hi, Mary. <laughs> so you've got three options. It's funny how all these people sound the same, isn't it? Yeah. Do you reckon, Mary? I reckon it's the R Festival. That sounds like a load of rubbish. Thank you, Mary. Oh. Oh, can't argue with that. No, well, Mary and the three of you are completely 
Correct. <laughs> Arf does not exist, but it should. <laughs> Peter, should we go Excellent. to you next? Okay, cool. Uh, I have three buffle bluffs about bad reviews. So these are reviews that were published for films that are actually pretty good, but the reviewer didn't think so for some reason. Number one, Mad Max Fury Road. The Chicago <laughs> Times called it an overlong trip <laughs> through... Perfect timing. <laughs> we, have the... <laughs> we actually have a Furiosa watching us. We don't have a Furiosa. can't remember the character's name, but they're on the front of the vehicle. The Chicago Times called it an overlong road trip through a series of orange and blue sandy landscapes as more refugees from a Duran Duran video try to fail and stop this interminable movie. At least they aren't all wasting fuel to uh, get more fuel this time around. Number two, Time Magazine reviewed Pretty Woman. No one has yet made a romantic comedy in which, say, a toxic waste dumper falls for a terrorist hijacker. They meet cute in an airport check line and she's got a bomb in the luggage. But Pretty Woman comes close to finding the least admirable characters to build a feel-good movie around. Yeah. And number three, seven. Newsweek <laughs> described it as so chic, studied and murky, it resembles a cross between a Nike commercial and a bad Polish art film, where overhead lighting has yet to be invented. Seven seems to believe if you drop enough references to Dante and Chaucer, you've achieved seriousness. <laughs> and Yoda as well. So. so which one of those three did I make up? I think Mad Max was pretty much loved when it came out. Yeah. Well, so were all of them. Yeah. So the reviewers do their review before the public have seen it. Yeah. They haven't got the public opinion to judge it on. They're supposed to set the opinion. And in this case, they just got it very, very wrong. A lot of critics like to kind of pick up on one tiny aspect of the film and like blow it up into a review that they think is really funny. And I think that might be the case with the Mad Max one. It's trying to be different, trying to make something funny, and it's actually not. And the Pretty Woman one kind of makes sense, because I, yeah. I don't think it's a great movie, and if you get into the politics of it, it's pretty dubious. But the politics, I don't think, was recognised at the time when it came out in 1990. I mm -hmm. think everyone just watched the film and, and saw how much chemistry the characters had, and then, like, ten years later, were like, actually, that's quite problematic. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very forward-thinking critic, if that's the case. Yeah. Seven... I don't know, I feel actually maybe Peter uh, <laughs> encouraging his own opinion on the film. Are you a fan of Seven, Peter? Yeah, actually. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. I mean, it's, it's sort of grimy and fairly miserable, but it's a great film. Well, if it is a, if it is a bluff, it's a very well-written, well scathing review <laughs> of a great movie. It's almost too well-written for Peter. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I flattered as always. Cross between a Polish art film and... A Nike commercial. A Nike commercial. Are you a fan of Dante and Chaucer? Are you, are you an expert on their works? Nope. Nope. Mm, unless that's a bluff. He's mm. some clever words. He's got a pair of Nike off. trainers. That's about as far as I go. I'm going to go for seven being the bluff just because it's too well written. I think you might spend some time figuring that one out. Okay. I'm going to go for Fury Road, I think. I'm going to go for Fury Road as well because I think everybody loved that film. Okay. Um... The seven one. Oh, wait, we haven't asked the audience yet. Yeah, let, let's do that. Uh, what's your name? Uh, my name's Bob. <laughs> right, Bob. Hello, Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi, Bob. Hello. <laughs> I, I, love, I love your podcast. I listen to it all the time when I'm uh, alone in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, uh, moving swiftly on, uh, which of those three do you think is, is the bluff? Uh, I think it's a pretty woman. Because uh, it, it's, it's a rubbish film and there's no robots in it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Well... Bob, I'm afraid you got it wrong. 
<laughs> it was Mad Max Fury Road. Ooh. I've just made up that, that review entirely. Yes, keep listening to us today, Bob. You know. I've gone now, I'm not here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ian McLaughlin, finish off this buff or bluff round for us. Would you like me to finish you off? Not of the kids. I'll talk about the podcast. Okay. Oh, you and your mind. Embarrassing. Um, can't take her anywhere. No, you can't. That's why we have to do this in a locked room normally. <laughs> okay, so for I've got a little bit of a quiz. It's basically true, true or false for each question. Okay. So um, there are many strange comic book characters that have come and gone across the years. I have ten comic book characters, some of which are real and some of which I have made up. I should point out, Ian has a real problem with counting. <laughs> the rules are three, but we never ever get three. I said I'd do a quiz. Pick three if you like, but you're getting ten, so shut up. <laughs> Number one is Arm Fall Off Boy. Basically, his superpower is that he can rip his own arm off and kill villains with it, beat them to death. It's Arm Fall Off Boy. Is that a true character or a made-up one? True. I think that's a true character. True. Yep. True. It is. It's a true character from the Legion of Superheroes. His only skill was to rip his own arm off and beat people to death with it. Does he then stick it back on? Or does it... Yeah, it kind of it kind of just sort of clicks on, a bit like Lego. Okay. Does yeah. it come back like a boomerang? No, he just holds it, holds himself by the wrist <laughs> <laughs> and beats people with a stumpy how end. Hold, how does he hold himself? Oh, with his other arm. He's, yeah, he's got okay. two arms. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next one is Dog Welder. Dog welder. It's not so much a superpower, but this guy uh, used to weld um, dead dogs to villains <laughs> as <laughs> punishment. That false. Is false. A complete lie. It's actually true. No, <laughs> it no. is actually true. It was created by Steve Dillon, best known for his work on uh, Preacher. Next one is Cowboy. Oh, Cowboy. <laughs> okay. Skill. He has a cow. But the cow um, was subjected to, uh, exposed to some secret government goo stuff in the Nevada desert. Right. Uh, he rides around on the cow, solving, you know, uh, getting villains and stuff like that. And the cow's ability is that it, it kind of goes like a bit berserk and kick people over the horizon. <laughs> so he's a super-powered cow. He's a super-powered cow and he rides around. He's like a sheriff. Okay. He's boy sheriff. spending too much time in Area 51. Yeah, that kind okay. of thing, yeah. yeah. False. False. Um, true. No, it's false. <laughs> I made it up. But it's a good idea, isn't it? Next one is Chairface Chippendale. It's a superhero with a, a Chippendale chair for a face. <laughs> what? Uh, well, he's, actually, what? he's not a superhero, he's a supervillain. And his mission in life is to make sure that everyone knows his name, including in one episode he, he, he attempts to write his uh, own name on the face of the moon. Okay. Is he a Chippendale? Well... Like, no, he's not a dancer. Like, no. No, 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 no male dancing. Um, I think that's, that's false. He's actually the father of Stoolface Chippendale as well. <laughs> false. Uh, false. No, it's true. Oh. <laughs> it was issue seven of the Tick comic, The Moon Menace. Next one is Bog Goblin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let the record show that Ian is now in fits of laughing. Can't, can't continue. <laughs> it's an evil sewer, sewer dwelling goblin. That uses the city's plumbing to attack its victims. False. Just on the expression alone. False, but it's a great name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I might have introduced you to the name Bob Goblin about two weeks ago. Did, yes, yes. <laughs> so. no, that, that one's false. It's definitely false. Um, next one is The Living Eraser. The man who mm. has rubber um, erasers for hands and can actually literally just erase people Ooh. with two strikes mm. of his hands. Mm. I'm going to go for true for that one. Me too. True. True. It is true, indeed, The Living Eraser. First appeared in Tales Up to Astonish in 1969. Next one is Danny the Street. 
True. It's a sentient street <laughs> that, that appears randomly when people are in trouble and he reconfigures yeah. himself to make them safe. But it's called Daddy. No, Danny. Danny. Oh, Danny. Danny. Okay. Daniel. Danny the street. Uh, true. He has true. a crazy mate who's a thin strip of tarmac. He's a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> He's also uh, genderqueer, apparently. Oh. Uh, he's in Doom Squad currently as a sentient street. Yeah. Next one. Okay. Number three. The calculator. Alison Abacus, who is struck by lightning while using a digital calculator, can instantly solve numeric puzzles and becomes advisor to MI5. <laughs> False. I'm going to go true just because the idea of the character being called Alison Abacus is such a terrible comic name, so I'm going to go for true for that one. False. Yes, it's false. I made that one. Next one The Fiddler. Supervillain who can manipulate people through the power of his violin. Oh. True. 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 Mm. Well, violin and a fiddle. He fiddle a violin? Yeah. Makes no sense. False. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> Fiddler is actually true. And finally, Seaweed, who is a, an early sidekick to Aquaman. I think it's his nephew, who wants to, desperately wants to be a superhero like his uncle, uh, and follows him around for about three episodes, but he doesn't have any superpowers and ends up getting killed by a shark. Is he actually Seaweed, or is he...? No, he's just called Seaweed, he, as that, in, that as as in superhero like, name. Young, young, pointless person. True. True. Uh, false. <laughs> just to be different yeah yes that one's false I made that one <laughs> seaweed does not exist but it should be imagine him like scrappy do oh dear yeah, that's what I imagined him excellent yeah. just realised we're in a room full of like comic book writers as people who are creating comic books live over there and they've probably stolen your four <laughs> newly created superheroes <laughs> so, yeah. if Alison Abacus ter- turns up in a Newcastle indie comic we in the next six sue, months we? We, can, we can sue that was before bluff Oh, wow. Batman has just broken into the Ghostbusters car. He's got something from the glove box. Oh, he's threatening them now. And is now threatening and, them. And uh, Ghostface is here as well. We've got a full contingent going Spider-Man's on. Spider-Man's going to help. Something's about to go down. So we'll keep an eye on that and we'll bring you news as we hear it. In the meantime, it is time for our feature called Shameful Gap. And this is where one of us nerds owns up you not having seen a famous nerdy film, watches it for the very first time and comes to the podcast to talk about how they found it. I'm guessing on DVD. Uh, Sorry, I misunderstood. <laughs> it's all right, I've only been doing this four years. Um, okay, so the film in question today is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, so who is the nerd who has not seen A Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's got to be you, isn't it? It's me. <laughs> I've never seen it. Shame. Okay, so I was told I should watch the original 1984 version, written and directed by Wes Craven. So this is a story about a supernatural human-esque monster called Freddy Krueger. He appears to come to life in people's dreams and kill them in their sleep. So, very solid premise in that there is no escape. Uh, at some point, you're going to have to fall asleep, and Freddy and his finger knives will be there waiting for you. So, I'll do a plot recap, uh, and I will be spoiling the film here. Well, I would argue the cinematographer did that. <laughs> oh, shots fired. Uh, so, if anyone hasn't seen it, um, please either skip to the next part of the podcast or vacate the area. 
Um, the film starts out with four teenagers, but anyone who's lived through the slasher horror films of the 70s, 80s, and 90s will know that very few of them make it to the end of the film. The central character is called Nancy. She and her friend Tina, as well as her boyfriend Glenn, played by Johnny Depp in his first film role, all discover that they have been having this recurring nightmare of meeting Freddy Krueger in various dark alleys or mysterious boiler rooms. And in fact, Tina often wakes with her nighty shredded as if it actually happened. It was a good choice, actually, because we're in a place called the Boiler Room at the moment, aren't we? Oh, I, I've only just put that together. <laughs> oh, gosh. Things just became a little bit more real. And here he is. <laughs> when Tina's mother goes out of town, they all decide to have a sleepover and try and protect each other. And when Tina falls asleep, she unfortunately meets a very, very unpleasant end. Now, because there's no one else in the room, uh, the blame for the grizzly murder gets pinned on Rod, who later dies in jail after Freddy makes it look like he's hanged himself. Nancy's dreams get more and more intense, and her mother, Marge, takes her to a sleep disorder clinic where, in the dream, and I've got Freddy staring at me now, which is nice. <laughs> Fred, oh, the head my, comes off. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Nancy grabs the man's fedora in the dream and then emerges with it um, while she's still in the clinic. And there's a name on the hat. John, what is that name? Freddy Krueger. Oh. Nancy's mother then explains to Nancy that Freddy Krueger is dead. It turns out that Freddy was a child murderer. And uh, he got out of going to jail on a technicality. So Marge and some fellow parents from school decided to kill Freddy by burning him alive. It's a Disney film. It is, yeah. Nancy realizes that Freddy Krueger's killings are not random. And he's going after the kids of the parents who killed him. Nancy is trying not to go to sleep. Uh, she does make it seven days, but unfortunately Glenn cannot do that. And there is a very, very famous scene where he gets eaten by a bed. <laughs> so what I will say is that uh, the perfect time to watch this film is as a teenager, surrounded by your mates, you've got popcorn, you've got sleeping bags, and the experience of watching the film is elevated as a result. I unfortunately watched it as a 36-year-old woman in the Me Too era, so I had some issues with it, which I'll come to. Um, good stuff first, though. Um, I did think the premise was excellent. Like, there's nothing scarier than not being able to control or escape from your fear. So the fact that Freddy Krueger comes for you in your dreams and there's nothing you can do about that's I, I think that's a really strong premise for a horror movie. I think it's a, a, a brilliant premise. the best thing about it. It was yeah. actually based on a true story. Right. There was a uh, an article in the LA Times about a kid who kept saying he was having nightmares and um, and then mysteriously died, and that was the, the spark for the film. Hmm. And it's the ultimate goal of all horror makers, isn't it? Finding that primal fear that we yes. all plug into. And that was good. And then repeating it fourteen or fifteen times, <laughs> ideally. I also thought that Freddie himself was quite well done, actually. So the finger knives were used to great effect, so they're like they're kind of scraping across certain things and I thought his smile and his laugh was kind of creepily evil. Like mm -hmm. I thought they got the balance there right. And I like the fact that he was supernatural. I think that really helped. And some of the later films get much more surreal with how they show dreams and things, yeah. don't they? Yeah. I mean in the later films Freddy Krueger is almost the anti-hero of the films. He certainly becomes much more the star and uh, comic relief and so on. It's a very 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 different character from oh, in the first film. I may have some problems with that. Um, I thought a lot of the effects were really good. Um, so the effect of Tina being killed early on, she's kind of being killed on the ceiling. I thought that was really, really good. Um, and then the bed scene with Johnny Depp, like I have seen that before in like YouTube clips and things like that. But I imagine if you're watching it for the first time, it was it would have been pretty shocking. 
like you think your bed is like this safe space and like I imagine that shook people up for a while although the the effect at the end where they pull someone through a window yes. <laughs> not very convincing I, I'm still in the good bit <laughs> is, is, is the licky phone in the first film yes that be, oh, that, oh yeah that freaked me out big yeah. time that was the original name for the iPhone one thing I thought this, this is where Wes Craven kind of excels like in Nancy's dream there's Tina's body in a body bag being dragged across the floor and her arm falls out just like it does on the TV pictures when her body's in a body bag and she's been carried into the ambulance like I just thought that was really really good mm-hmm. I also liked Nancy uh, which is important because she's the main uh, star of the film. Um, I like the fact that she was depicted as trying to face things head on. And she was scared, like who wouldn't be? But despite that, she wanted to help her friends. She wanted to help her mother. And she was going to face Freddy no matter what. I also really like her relationship with her mother. What you often get in horror movies, um, and you got it here to some extent with other parents, is that like parents don't believe their kids and they think that they're crazy. And... That wasn't really the case with this relationship. The mother wanted to tell Nancy something that she's probably ashamed of and is horrible in her past in order to reassure her and protect her. And I really like that. Okay, so here's what I didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just stop here, because it's one of the greatest films ever made, and anything you say from here on in is completely wrong. All right, well, speaking of consent... um, The scene at the beginning where uh, Tina's boyfriend grabs her from behind and puts his hand over her mouth and she yells at Nancy not to leave her alone with him. And the, the next moment there's a child in front of me, so I won't explain. But um, let's just... It's a bit dubious, isn't it? Consent not, not means nothing. Well. And um, that's like apparently what she really wanted, which is very, very troubling. Um, there's a very, very horrible POV in the bath. Freddy Krueger's hand kind of comes up from the water in between her legs and... She's 15. I was, I was like, I was genuinely disgusted at that. The phone that you mentioned as well, like where Freddy Krueger says, "I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy," and then his lips and his tongue is like, Ooh. like I know this is a horror film. I know I'm watching horrible things, but that, like, no, 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 no thank you. <laughs> and John, you have to kind of explain the ending to me because it's very, very odd. At the end of the film. There's this kind of section added on where Nancy kind of steps outside into this bright and foggy morning and her friends and her mother are all still there and they're all still alive and then they mm-hmm. get into a car and then... And the car has Freddy Krueger's yeah. jumper as his roof. Yeah. So the original ending was just Nancy waking up and going out and her friends were there and in like this kind of ideal world and it suggested that it might all have been a dream. The studio wanted sequels, so insisted on that last 30 seconds or so where the, the car comes up and drives away in the screaming and a mannequin gets pulled through a door. Yeah. That, is it Marge or is it a mannequin? Who knows? <laughs> um, that, was, knows. that was tapped on by the, the studio against the director's request and it makes no sense whatsoever. No. It kind of ended weirdly but overall I, I didn't hate it. I did like it. Uh, I thought there were some really good moments in it but I would say of all the shameful gaps I've had in the past where sometimes I've been like apologetic that it didn't have that film in my life sooner this is one where i you know, I, I i wouldn't have minded going through life without having seen it yeah you don't feel your life is richer in any way i don't but i did like i had some fun with it. it it went on to have lots of sequels and you can see there are some great ideas in it and some fairly unique ideas in it but it's just a couple of technical things like it was obviously made so cheaply like the sound is awful it's really badly done. The music is pretty terrible as well. Oh, I love the music. Oh, you would. I, I really love the music. But it's it's no John Carpenter, is it? Mm. No, not quite. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose hats off. 
Freddy's hat off, uh, to the creature design. Yeah. yeah. Every horror movie, doesn't it, stands or falls on its creature design. I think mm-hmm. it's such an iconic look. It was originally going to be David Warner, and he dropped out at the very last oh. moment um, before Robert England stepped in. Hmm. Was Robert England well known at the time? or No, I think he'd done V. The terrible 1980s lizards attack the earth and take over. Who knows if that's real or not? He wasn't a massive star. And in fact, for the sequel, they started filming just with a stuntman in a mask and didn't think they needed him for the sequel and then kind of realised fairly quickly they did. In one of the later films, doesn't he, he appears as himself as Robert England and then gets killed by Freddy, is that how it works? Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is about making a nightmare in Elm Street film. That's right, yeah. And Freddy Krueger comes into the real world to force <laughs> them to make another film. It's, it's really, really good. When you say good? <laughs> it's brilliant. It's, it's one, of my, one of my top ten horror films. It's good, mm. yeah. And that, I think they set the tone with Freddy quite well early on in that he chops off his fingers and goes, hey, Nancy, look at this. And then he, like, creates holes in his torso as well. It's like, he's not afraid of anything. He'll cause himself, well, it doesn't look like pain. Mm-hmm. But um, so I think it, that made him kind of scary. And I do think the effects and, like, his body was done really, really well. So, John, have I ruined your, one no. of your favourite films? Do you want to watch the sequels? Maybe not, especially if... Freddy Krueger becomes an anti-hero. He's a child murderer. Um, no, thank you. We talked about in the Buffalo Bluff about how he becomes this massive cultural figure, and it's a really unpleasant concept. Yeah. And then suddenly he's on, you know, serial boxes and even more unpleasant when you find out his origin story. Yeah. Let's not go into that because it's kids. But <laughs> yeah. Don't watch that. No. That's that's part three, I think. I will say I'd like to see more Nancy though. I yeah, Nancy is in part three and part seven, which are the other two good ones. Yeah. Um, but part three was directed by Chuck Russell, who went on to do The Mask and Erase. It was written by Frank Darabont. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and stars Patricia Arquette and Lawrence Fishburne. That was the, the big mainstream hit one. So that, that's the one that I would recommend if you were going to watch any of the sequels. So, how many unpleasant bath times would oh, you Oh, no. Oh, God. How many, how many sons of a thousand maniacs? <laughs> I'll be having six Sons of a Thousand Maniacs out of ten, I think. So, mm. good, not great. Yeah. Are you a fan of Ian? I love it. It's the character. The, the later films don't really do much for me, but the, the original, just it was such a genuinely disturbing movie. I still think it's a classic. Hi, it's John, and we're here again from the Nerd Flight Fest at the Boiler Shop in Newcastle, where we are with Simon Donald, him off the viz. Hi, Simon. Hiya, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Are you enjoying yourself? I, would, I wouldn't mind if they turned the racket down a bit so we can hear each other, but yeah, apart from that, it's all good, yeah. So you're famously the, the co-creator of this with your brother, is that correct? Yeah, me and my brother Chris began sort of doing a little comic with swearing in, in 1979. And we used to just sell it to friends and around the pubs. And then we started going to some punk gigs in Gosforth. By then, we'd started to put these little cartoons we'd been doing together into a comic. We sold out the entire print run on the first night. It was only 150 copies, but it was pretty good going. And then we just kind of built the whole thing up from there, you know? And I think, is it right, at one point, you were sort of the third biggest selling magazine behind the radio and TV Times? Yeah, I mean, we were absolutely massive at one point. We overtook Private Eye in 86 or 87, and we overtook Punch around about the same time. That was really significant because they were both 
historically very important magazines in British culture, you know, and we sort of grew up on them. It wasn't what we liked. Chris was more into Private Eye than I was. We used to like uh, cartoons, we liked comics, and we liked a lot of humorous stuff, Monty Python, The Goons. We sort of grew up listening to comedy records that my dad collected and... Uh, in terms of our creativity, we had a very close tie with what was going on in British comics rather than American stuff, although I'd read American comics as a, as a teenager. So like, there's a, I know there's a famous picture of David Bowie sat reading a viz, so that's some sort of, I know you're a music fan, so what was it like to see somebody like that reading with your magazines? It's remarkable, actually, how many times over the years people have told us that people who we idolized had actually been fans of our work. And it's not really anything that you ever get over that. It's marvelous. I mean, Bowie's obviously a, a really a really big one, and he was a huge fan of Viz as well, a huge fan of humor generally. The first words um, Mick Jones out of The Clash ever said to me, he opened a toilet door in a club. I was going in and he was coming out, and he opened the door and he saw me face and he went, Paul Wicker, the tall vicar. And I was absolutely blown away, you know. And that's sort of that kind of stuff's happened a lot. I went to get Lemmy's autograph in um, maybe '81 or something like that, and that was very early days of Viz. He told me straight away that he'd already seen it and he really liked the Tall Vicar, you know. So it's um, yeah, it's amazing how much that's happened over the years. So what are you up to these days? I know you're not writing for Viz anymore. You're doing sort of stand-up comedy and things like that at the moment. Really, I, I sort of tour as a. A, a, a jobbing stand-up comedian nowadays you get to tell your jokes to people often as you think of them you know you actually get feedback which with doing the comic was very difficult to to actually see people enjoying your work you know okay thank you very much nice to speak to you all right so we are coming to a close but before then let's have a peter pun quiz oh god uh, these are terrible puns, I will warn you that. Okay, so you've got to get the movie title which has had one letter changed. So I'm going to give you a clue that is what it's become after that letter has changed. So the, like a new synopsis? Yes. Okay. Number one. A Baroque composer discovers a time machine and embarks on a fantastic trip to discover the possibilities of synthesizers Buzz. and electric... Bark to the future. It is. Oh, <laughs> God's sake. It's going to be ten more of them. Yeah. I got a slow Thank clap you. for that. Thank yeah. you very much. Number two. An elite task force investigates posh crimes, including a restaurant that's been reported to be serving dangerously warm champagne. Hmm. Hot fizz. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Number three. The toughest parts of the urban jungle were prowled by a dangerous wild animal. Hmm. Urban jungle? New York City? I have no idea. No idea. Okay, so think of some dangerous wild animals. Lions. Tiger. Crocodile dungarees. Yeah, we're in the right territory. Are you crocodile, crocodile dungarees. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I like it. We have a clue. Okay, so the urban jungle is made up of sections of the city. What would they be called? Blocks. What sort of animal? Light prowl. Block. I'm going to have to tell you, aren't I? Um, yeah. yeah, you're going to have to tell us. A blocked panther. Oh, oh. <laughs> A bunch of kids on their way home have to pay the fine for expectorating on the floor of the Flying Scotsman. Train spitting. Yes. <laughs> this one I was worried about doing where kids were around, but I think we'll be okay. A man is discovered tied up in the woods with a rubber mask on his head covered in zips. 
Forest Gimp. Yes. <laughs> Just when the organiser arrived. <laughs> Hannibal finally worked out how to stop that annoying squeak when he walks. Say that again? Hannibal finally worked out how to stop that annoying squeak when he walks. I, I, I know this, but I don't get what the lump, silence of the limbs. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is pretty bad. The band made a series of impossible demands before the gig, including the recovery of Noah's missing vehicle. Riders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's, let's have the rest of them. Try as they might, they couldn't find Grandma, but things kept moving around the house of their own accord, and someone had taken all the bandages. Something about the mummy? Yeah. Or poltergeist? Couldn't find their gram. <laughs> Nanny. Getting warm. Mm. It is. No. The invisible dad. Oh, for oh. sake. <laughs> oh. Oh, this one's easy. It was only in Jamaica that Captain Jack finally got his body into shape. Pilates of the Caribbean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Two more. Uh, Peter Weller plays a homeless drifter who puts his life back together and joins the police to catch criminals in a dystopian Hobo future. Cop. Yes, it is Hobocop. <laughs> Promise this is the last one. Yoko undertakes a dangerous suicide mission to steal the plans to the Death Star. Berg owner. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, what a horrible note to end on. How long did you spend writing those, Peter? About 30 minutes. <laughs> Excellent. And that is all for this episode of Nerdfest live from Newcastle Fright Fest. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And you can also leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. John, what's our wonderful reward for the people who do that? Well, there are so many wonderful cosplayers here today. If anyone uh, likes us, we will send a cosplayer of their choice to, to visit them. And, uh, so we've got the Joker there, we've got the terrifying thing got from Me, I'm Scared. We've got How about whatever they choose, you dress up as it? I will, I will, dre- I will dress up in any costume of their choice. Come around the house. Yeah, as long as it's... Um, before uh, 9.30. Before 9.30 or Tuesday. Okay, get those reviews in. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, you've been listening to... Ian McLaughlin. A man who's going to have to lie to his partner about how much he spent on merchandise today. A man more dead than actually live. And a woman who thinks the Golden Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival is misleading and they should award it to a real bear, you cowards. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.